Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are continuing our two-part series on the Columbia Race Riot of February 25, 1946. That day was a pivotal one in the history of the country, but no one knew it at the time. What started off as an argument between a radio repair business and a poorly treated customer turned into violence, arrests, the threat of lynchings, and eventually the inclusion of some of the great influencers of the period, including the President of the United States, a former First Lady, and a future United States Supreme Court Justice. The incident, remembered as the Columbia Race Riot, was the first such event following World War II and marks a significant change in race relations not only in rural Tennessee, but nationally. Historians count the event as a very first step in the American Civil Rights Movement. I'm in the studio with my co-host, Joanne McClellan. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning, Tom. Together, we are joined via phone, once again, by Dr. Gail Williams O'Brien, Professor Emeritus from North Carolina State University. Dr. O'Brien is the author of the seminal book on the Columbia Race Ride entitled The Color of the Law, Race, Violence, and Justice in the Post-World War II South, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 1999 and was the recipient of the American Historical Association's Littleton Griswold Award for the best book in any field in the history of law and society. Dr. O'Brien, welcome back to History's Hook. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. On today's episode, we'll take a deeper look at the trial that ensued following the riot, its outcomes, and the legacy of the event on the civil rights movement. But before we get into that, let's recap a little bit. Dr. O'Brien, on February 25, 1946, Gladys Stevenson and her son James were simply going to pick up a radio at a local cast-or-not department store, one that they had left to be repaired. What happened next that sparked a racial confrontation? Well, at that point, um, Gladys and the uh, LaBelle LaPointe, who was the manager owner there of the radio repair sh- at the repair shop, um, spoke with her, and they got into a big argument because her um, radio still was not working. She wanted it for her children. Her son, James, had just come home uh, from service, and now she had paid. She had found it very difficult to get together the money to pay for it, and now LaPointe was telling her that the radio still did not work and he would have to charge additionally to insert batteries. And so they got into what was described as a loud argumentative uh, time. And um, William Billy Fleming, who was from, uh, had also been in, in the military, he was there uh, training under the GI Bill. And James Stevenson had been in the Navy, that was Gladys's eldest son, he was 19, and he had just come home, and at that point, um, he told LaPointe that perhaps he could repair the radio, he had done some electronics and service and so forth, and to give to him, so uh, Gladys took the um, radio in her hands, and they were leaving, and as they were leaving the store, um, she told, um, they, they passed a person there um, as they were going down the steps, and she said, 
if you want to get your radio repaired, don't bring it here. All they do is mess it up. She later said she was just speaking to James, but William Billy Fleming at that point said something to her, and she told James. And so James put himself between his mother and and William Billy Fleming. And as they went out the door, um, Billy, uh, Billy Fleming gave James a hard punch in the back of the neck. And James, who had been a welterweight boxer when he was in the military in the Navy, came up. They hit um, Billy Fleming. They fell through the plate glass window there at the uh, Castronaut department store, and then they came up fighting. And to kind of make the story short, uh, Billy Fleming was taken to the hospital. James and his mother were taken down um, uh, to jail and asked if they had committed a, a, a crime of fighting on the town square. Uh, they said, yes, they had. They were fined $50. But instead of getting to go home at that point, they had to go to the sheriff's office because it was there um, that uh, Billy Fleming's father, John Fleming Sr., turned out had filed an attempted murder charge against James and his mother. So they were taken to the sheriff's office. Meanwhile, a mob, uh, well, maybe that's not part of the right word, a crowd of whites were gathering around on the town square, milling around, and this was very frightening because, as Ms. McClellan reminded us last time, there had been two lynchings recently, 1927 and 1933, there in um, Murray County, and... uh, there was a lot of concern about what might happen. And uh, several of the police officers, um, the oldest being 70 and 68, they walked down into the toward the bottom um, a little bit later while the, the mob was moving around. But meanwhile, the sheriff had, um, had uh, released James and Gladys from jail uh, he, James had gone down into the bottom or East 8th Street. Uh, Gladys had gone home to be with her mother. Uh, when James went down into East 8th Street, uh, the sheriff showed up with his deputy, Claude, uh, Chief Deputy Claude Gold, and they um, basically told James he better get out of town because whites were gathering on the town square. How much and at this, this point, was, uh, if, if I may, yeah. how much at this point... Uh, is news passing around town? Do we have a sense of how many people are starting to gather and from where are they gathering uh, as they're coming to the town square here in Columbia? Well, they're gathering on the town square um, and um, the young man who had been lynched in 1927, his his body had been hung there um, on the at the courthouse. And the, or the rope had been left dangling there at the courthouse, and this was very close to the courthouse and on the town square. Right. So, Joanne, and, can you uh, t- can you speak to the proximity between the courthouse and East Eighth Street? It's only yeah. Uh, a East Eighth Street was. Oh, excuse me. I, I'm, go I'm go, ahead, go, go ahead, ahead, Gail. <laughs> no, no, you you go ahead. <laughs> I, I just didn't hear. Go ahead. East Eighth Street is just uh, one block away. So we're we're talking about really just a two block area, on and and 
sort of the bottom is sort of a, a low area, uh, significantly lower than the courthouse space. So we have whites gathering, uh, groups of whites gathering around the courthouse just two blocks away in the bottom is the African-American business district. So we're talking a pretty close proximity. So as tensions are rising uh, and people are gathering on both sides, uh, um, it's really just a matter of time before something's going to happen. And it does. Uh, so we'll continue with the story, uh, Dr. O'Brien. Uh, you said that officers, uh, after dark, start walking down into the bottom. They're asked to halt, but they don't. What happens next? Well, at that point in time, uh, guns bring out from the bottom area. Uh, they don't know what's coming. It is dark. James Stevenson has already been taken out of town, and they it's a, a tricky ride, but they eventually get him to Nashville where he gets on a train and goes to Chicago to be with his dad. But meanwhile, African-Americans have been gathering down in the bottom. Many of them were had been in the military, and they were determined that they were not going to, to be invaded or have another lynching in, in this county. And Bernard Stoffel and the police, they were elderly, uh, and Chief Griffin, and they just were not accustomed to this kind of environment and they just stroll down the street saying boys we just want to come and talk to you and of course african-americans are there in the bottom they're frightened they don't know what's going on it's dark they can't see and suddenly guns fire and the uh, police officers are hit with the gunfire none is killed but Police Chief Walter Griffin, in particular, was seriously injured. So, so at and, this point already, yeah. things have changed really dramatically. It seems to me it goes from this incident with the Stevensons. The Stevensons are now basically safe, but the right. there are rumors flying around town. People are gathering, and this is sort of taking on a life of its own. So, uh, absolutely, what you're saying are the the local police is they're seeing this escalation of tension. They're not equipped to to deal with this. They see this this change that's taking place. So who do they call in for help? Uh, they call in for help uh, the state the state guard. They call the governor's office. The state guard comes in. Uh, Jacob McAuliffe Dickinson, who heads that and was a former military person who had planned to be a career military professional. He'd gone to school at Yale. He was. Uh, planning, but he was his eyes were badly injured in World War One. So he was heading the state guard, and most of the state guard were young people because those who had been adults and so forth had had, had to go into the military during the war. Also came in the highway patrol under uh, Lynn Bomar, who was the highway patrol chief. These were all um, culturally uh, very into racing around on their Harley David motorcycles and. Uh, looking threatening and proud of it. And, and the um, um, Highway Patrol Chief, Lynn Bomar, um, was handpicked by the governor, and um, they had no ties whatsoever politically to any of the African Americans, whereas the sheriff there in Murray County um, had uh, worked politically with the middle class African Americans in the bottom or East 8th Street, so they had um, they had some ties. But um, the highway patrol came in, the state guard came in, and the long and short, just to summarize a little bit quickly, 
long and short was that the state guard and the highway patrol agreed on the time that they would go into the bottom or the East 8th Street the next morning. And instead, the highway patrol uh, tore into the Morton's funeral parlor and devastated that during the night. The next morning, they went in very early, long before they were supposed to, as the state guard. And they absolutely destroyed businesses and, and wrecked everything uh, in the uh, East 8th Street area. And East 8th Street had, yes, pool rooms, and but it also had pharmacies, insurance company, uh, the funeral parlor of the Mortons and so forth. So uh, they just destroyed those businesses and um and uh in their in their going in they wounded one person seriously but they they did not kill any people they didn't kill anyone but they did totally destroy East 8th Street um there have been rumors uh and and they continue on today for those who who haven't looked into the records and looked into the history uh, I, I know I've come across a few people wanting to know more about the race riot and, and have heard stories that the streets were running red with blood. But a, as you said, there are relatively few deaths. It prompts the question, And was this a race riot? I, I think that term is sort of a misnomer. This isn't a story of African Americans rising up. This is really more of a story, it seems to me, of African Americans sort of defending themselves and worried based on history and events in history, i.e. the lynchings that had taken place as late as the 1930s, uh, they're, they're, defending, they're defending themselves. How would you characterize yeah. this? Well, that's a tough one. I, race riot does not explain it at all because, as you're right, when we say race riot, people often think of African-Americans or whatever. They were defending themselves, and they were trying to initially defend James and his and his mother. Um, and it's hard, racial conflict, racial encounter, highway patrol riot. <laughs> I don't. Uh, <laughs> maybe that uh, would work a little better. But um, uh, actually, no one was killed during this situation. Uh, on either side, but uh, it was incredibly important because liberal and leftist groups were still uh, empowered in in ways that they had become during the during World War II, and the Cold War really hadn't gotten underway yet. So there was a lot of pressure on the Truman administration to send in investigators and and to do something there, which is how we ended up with a federal grand jury hearing and then uh, the trials. And I can go into more than that when you're ready. Uh, we're going we're gonna to come back to that in just a second. There were some deaths associated with this. Two men, William Gordon and James Johnson, uh, had been arrested. Um, yes. As, as did more than 100 others. But, but these two in particular, William Gordon and James Johnson, were removed from the jail, placed in an office supposedly with loaded guns nearby as they awaited the bail that the sheriff felt certain their white employers would post. According to one account, Gordon grabbed a gun and pointed it at a deputy and was immediately shot right. along with Johnson. Both died on the way to the hospital. A third, Napoleon Stewart, was badly beaten by law enforcement officers. Uh, this incident is still shrouded in mystery. Uh, 
what would prompt Gordon, do you suppose, to grab the gun? Is there any background information on exactly yeah, what happened that's, there? Yeah, that's a good question. And when I said there was no death, I meant when the highway patrol went in and devastated East right. H Street. But, yes, there was the situation afterwards when, as you said, William Gordon and um, James Johnson, me Johnson's son, uh, were there with Napoleon Stewart. And they had asked to be held there because um, Johnson in particular was concerned that African American, other African Americans would think that he had told too much or said things to the sheriff or, or and the police and so forth. So they were there. What? What did? There were the pile of rifles and guns that the highway patrol had seized in the bottom were stacked there in the office. But what prompted Gordon to pick up the gun? I'm not sure. And whether or not he even intended to fire it or or what happened. However, there was a highway patrolman in the hall, and when he saw Gordon pick up that gun, he immediately fired, and he killed Gordon. And then they, he killed James Johnson. And we don't know whether or not Johnson had tried to do, help be with Gordon, get a gun, what he had done, if anything. Um, and we never found out. We never knew anything about William Gordon's motivation or why Johnson was uh, James Me Johnson was killed, although he was standing close to Gordon when Gordon grabbed the gun, whereas Napoleon uh, Stewart was on the other side of the office, not far away, but not exactly with them. We're going to need to take our first break. When we come back, we'll get into the trial. Thank you for listening to History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about one of the most historically important events that happened in Middle Tennessee and the nation, the 1946 Columbia Race Riot. We're privileged to have with us today on History's Hook Dr. Gail O'Brien, the author of the book The Color of the Law, which is the most important book uh, chronicling the history of the Columbia Race Riot in 1946. Dr. O'Brien, as we continue the story, over 100 African Americans have been arrested after after the highway patrolmen ransacked the business district on East 8th Street in Columbia. Uh, a trial is going to be coming about. One of the things that I find most interesting is that a number of organizations and high-ranking officials were watching the events unfold in Columbia. They included uh, people as high up as Attorney General Tom Clark, the civil liberties unions, labor unions, and even the Communist Party. The Southern Conference for Human Welfare published a pamphlet entitled The Truth About Columbia, Tennessee Cases, which outlined the Columbia events from the point of view of the African-American community. That same group orchestrated the National Emergency Conference to Stop Lynch Terror in Columbia, from which a short-lived United Committee Against Police Terror in Columbia, Tennessee, was formed. The Federal Justice Department was briefed. President Truman was inundated with so many calls that he automatically referred people to the Attorney General. The NAACP took the lead both in their hands-on defense of those arrested, but also in the public relations materials that were being promulgated. 
Can you speak to the NAACP's messaging efforts and some of these other groups, too? They seem to be attaching themselves, uh, seeing the importance of these events as they're happening. They're attaching themselves to them and, and sort of using this event uh, as a public relations campaign. Absolutely. Uh, the NAACP, every, there were a number of groups that had gone into Columbia and uh, Southern Conference for Human Welfare and others, and ultimately they all united under the NAACP with the exception of the Communist Party. They had sent someone down also from New York, but uh, all the others united under the NAACP, and the uh, did an incredible job under the leadership of Oliver Ollie Harrington. Uh, Oliver Harrington had been a Pittsburgh Courier uh, journalist. He was a cartoonist. He was really um, a, a well-known uh, writer and cartoonist. And he, he was hired by the NAACP to be the publicity director. And he put together... Um, 29 different groups of that in every one included and somebody from the national office of the NAACP and a defendant in the Columbia case and they covered they did uh, gatherings throughout from Boston to Roanoke, Boston Massachusetts to Roanoke Virginia they went as far west as Minnesota and Minneapolis and Kansas City they were everywhere spreading information and, and giving out over 50,000 pamphlets were distributed by them and by another group called the National Committee for Justice in Tennessee. And that committee included Eleanor Roosevelt, Channing Tobias. It included all sorts of well-known uh, people. And so this information was really spread widely about what was happening in Tennessee. And um, one of the things that uh, perhaps when we're talking about the grand jury trial or so for a federal um, grand jury hearing is that this really irritated whites in Tennessee, uh, in Murray County and so forth, because they did not think that relationships between African Americans and whites were any worse there than they were in any other part of the nation. And so this really um, would put a number of people uh, on edge about it. Let's talk about the trial a little bit. Uh, Z. Alexander Luby and Maurice Weaver are part of the defense team. How, how many people have been arrested, and how is the legal side of this story unfolding? Well, there were— um, Eventually, as you said, initially 100 people were arrested, but initially there were um, 25 people put on the first on trial, um, and um, then later there would be a second trial with uh, Pillow and Kennedy, who had fired from the um, uh, barbershop. But the first the trial that was best known, et cetera, was uh, there. In Murray County, it was under Z. Alexander Luby. I can come back and talk more about the trial if you like. But um, there were 25 African Americans put on trial, and uh, I won't tell you just yet how many of them were found guilty. But uh, we'll get there. I expect. We we will. Uh, the attorney general ordered a grand jury investigation. What were the findings of that jury? Okay, I, I just want to say really quickly that. 
U.S. District Attorney Horace Frierson, who was the district attorney there in the Tennessee area when this occurred, was a native of Columbia, although he was living in Nashville. And the Attorney General you mentioned a few minutes ago, Tom Clark, who was in Washington, uh, was getting a lot of um, pressure from liberal and leftist groups to get something done. So he sent his special assistant. And interestingly, James E. Ruffin, who was Attorney General Tom Clark's special assistant, was also a native of Columbia. But he was sent there to investigate, and more FBI agents were sent. But the U.S. District Attorney, Horace Frierson, kept saying, oh, no, there's been no problem, et cetera. We, we didn't find anything. And so President Truman called him to Washington, and he went to Washington, and um, he then released, um, um, within the uh, first time he met there, a directive ordering a federal grand jury investigation. And in convening the federal grand jury, uh, federal judge Elmer Davis read word for word the indictments that had been composed in Washington within the civil rights section. And the only time he deviated from that script was he when he added that liberal organizations should be put on trial himself themselves. But I will just say that the determining factor in the grand jury hearing was very much what I mentioned a few minutes ago, and that is that people in the area were infuriated that all this negative attention was being brought on them about race relations because they believed that they were no different from any other part of the nation. They reached a a conclusion that, quote, they could not ascertain the identity of the person or persons committing these acts of vandalism, that is, in the East 8th Street area. And they went on to exonerate all law officers involved in the Columbia Affair, uh, the Columbia Affair, including the state police. So all were exonerated. So despite the obvious evidence, as seen on East 8th Street, businesses are ransacked, theft has been reported, uh, no one is held accountable for that. That's correct. No one is held accountable. Then we move on to the trial. Well, at at the same time as the grand jury, criminal charges are being handed down. James Stevenson and his mother, Gladys Stevenson, were initially charged with attempted murder of Billy Fleming. The bail was set at $3,500. They were not included with the 28 African Americans finally charged. Did the official police files note why the charges were dropped? Um, There was no indication about why they were dropped. My guess was that James Stevenson had already left town by the time the um, shots were fired. His mother had already gone home. Um, And I'm just thinking that perhaps they just didn't have any evidence to bring against Stevenson. But uh, I don't really know. And I did not find anything about why those charges were dropped. But as you'll see as we move along, it's not unusual that charges are dropped here and there. We'll talk about that in a bit. So the defense team gathers. Uh, They are requesting a venue change for the trial, requesting Davidson or Williamson County. Um, One of the arguments of the defense team was that fairness was impossible for black defendants because no black Murray Countyans has served on the jury. In fact, no blacks had served on a jury since the turn of the 20th century. Was that a common uh, common fact throughout the United States, or was that something that 
really is localized in, in this area? No, that's pretty common throughout the United States. African Americans very, very rarely, if ever, uh, served on juries. That was that was common northeast, south, and west. Yeah. So they're asking for a change of venue, feeling that they weren't going to get a fair shake in Murray County. What were the circumstances yes. that led to the request, and, and how did they eventually start vetting some of the potential jurors? Well, they they really wanted to get the defense team wanted to get the trial moved to Nashville because Nashville was a larger city than than Columbia. It was uh, more diversified. Fisk University was there. There were a number of uh, middle class African Americans, and they just felt that they could get a fair trial in Nashville. But they didn't settle on Davidson County. Uh, they ended up going where? <laughs> No, they settled on Lawrence County, and uh, initially, um, the, the the people who were <coughs> for the defense were horrified because they had thought of Lawrence County as what they called a rim county. Uh, there was no rich soil, not many African Americans. Eleanor Roosevelt condemned this choice in her syndicated column. So uh, it was uh, it was not regarded well, but in the end, it turned out to be a good place. Uh, in in part because there was a there was a lot of diversity in Lawrence County. Uh, German Catholics had been refugees from Alsace-Lorraine in France and had started arriving there just five years after the Civil War. In 1946, there were three parishes with Catholic church, priest houses, schools, and convents. Uh, the people who worked there were skilled workers who provided essential services. And then in 1944, two years before the Columbia situation, three Amish families moved there uh, from southern Mississippi, and they were joined by other Amish settlers from Ohio. And so there were uh, uh, there was a lot of diversity. And African Americans, there were only, it is true, very few, only 42 but 37 of them owned their own farms, and one was in the process of buying his. And that left only four African Americans who didn't own their own land, and they were wage workers, not tenants. The only tenants in that area were white Protestant farmers. So uh, this resulted in, interestingly enough, a lot of intermingling on the parts of blacks and whites. And one journalist who was there noted during the trial, quote, colored and white spectators sat together in the courtroom. They swapped opinions and used the same toilets. So the segregation had not penetrated Lawrenceburg the way it had most of the South and uh, the urban areas as African Americans had moved from rural to urban areas. And especially among lower-class whites, there was a diversity of opinion. Now, the fact is, of course, middle-class whites were worried about respectability. Lower-class whites didn't much care about that. Most lower-class whites were very hostile toward African Americans. But a few were not. And they were instead respectful toward middle-class African Americans. And here is where the critical defense team made the difference. Over a five-week period, they called 700 
potential jurors. And of that 700, they chose 12 jurors and one alternate, 13 out of 700. And so they managed to get eventually 13 largely all lower-class whites who didn't have a lot of inclination toward racism, and they were not at all worried about respect or hostility from other whites. In fact, I interviewed one of these jurors in 1989, Jesse Bradley, and I said, were you concerned when the verdict was rendered that there might be trouble? And his response was, quote, oh, no. In fact, I didn't much care if there was. So <laughs> they uh, they did a great job choosing that that jury. That's really fascinating. So on the outset, they're really concerned. The defense team is really concerned. Lawrence County being this very rural county, they were hoping to get to one of the more urban areas in the state, thinking that they would have a better selection of potential jurors. They wind up having to go to Lawrence County, a very rural area. The defense team on the outset believes that they have no reason to expect any better treatment in a Lawrence County than they did in Columbia. But in fact, as the t- statistics bear out, as you just said, it worked very much to their advantage. So there's an all-white jury from the Lawrenceburg area. Uh, what was the defense team's strategy for the trial? How how are they going to try to defend these these men? Okay, well, they, they had an outstanding group uh, team of defense attorneys. I've mentioned Z. Alexander Luby, who was a brilliant but low-key style African— uh, well, he was actually from the Caribbean, but he would be considered African-American— He had a law degree from Columbia. He had a doctorate in law from New York University. Uh, He was extremely um, uh, brilliant, but he had a low-key style. In fact, if I could just insert this really quickly, when I interviewed his wife, um, Dr. Libby had already passed away in 1972, and I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but I interviewed his wife there in Nashville, and she said that when the... um, uh, civil rights movement was really going strong in the early 1960s, and Z. Alexander Luby was working involved in it in, in very significant ways. And one night, uh, the house was bombed. There was a bomb at the front of the house. And fortunately, their bedroom was at the back. And she said, wake up, wake up. He said to, to Z. Alexander Luby, our house has been bombed. And he said, oh, it's just thunder. Go back to sleep. <laughs> so, in fact, he was brilliant, but not going to get all upset. In contrast, which also proved great for the legal defense team, was Morris Weaver. Morris Weaver was a white attorney who had worked with the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, in Chattanooga, and he was what he was described as peppery and aggressive, and he would run around and say things and so forth. So... The peppery one was white, the calm one was African-American, and they had planned to have Thurgood Marshall with them uh, from Washington, but he developed pneumonia. And so Leon Ransom, who was at Howard University and an attorney, he joined them. But it was, it was actually Luby and, and Weaver who were most involved in, in the trial. Who, who composed the prosecution side? The prosecution was represented by Attorney General, by uh, U.S. Uh, local district attorney, uh, Paul Bumpus. 
uh, and uh, he was uh, also aided by Hugh Shelton Sr., who was a Columbia attorney, and by Bud Harwell. Now, Bud Harwell was a local prosecutor from Lawrence County, and uh, so there was uh, Paul Bumpus and Hugh Shelton and Bud Harwell. Good. We're going to take our second break now. When we come back, we'll talk about how the trial unfolds and the outcomes. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook, where we're following a two-part series on the Columbia Race Riot of 1946. We're joined uh, in the studio with Joanne McClellan and via phone, Dr. Gail O'Brien. Dr. O'Brien, the trial is getting underway. How much national play is there? Are there correspond- Are there national correspondents there paying attention to what's happening in this little courtroom? Well, I think that there is a lot of attention still from the uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and her group in the National Group, uh, the National Justice Committee, um, and uh, the trial there is in Lawrence County, and they are incensed that it's been moved there because they think it's bringing them bad publicity throughout the nation, and they are not happy about that. So. One of the reasons that so many jurors were rejected in part was because of the unhappiness and their unwillingness to serve and finding reasons not to do it. So, yes, it's getting well known because, and that's uh, what Lawrence County is worried about. Right. So how does the trial unfold? Are there arguments on both sides? How long does the trial last? Well, the trial goes on for... um, few weeks, uh, the prosecution under uh, Attorney General Paul Paul Bumpus rants against defense attorneys as carpetbaggers who shouldn't be there and they should be the ones on trial, Uh, with one exception, and I'll return to that in just a minute. The Alexander Luby and, and Lawrence and Maurice Weaver, of course, are doing a very effective job with people on the stand. But Bud Harwell, He was the local prosecutor from Lawrence County, and he delivered in his closing address what was described as, quote, even-handed remarks. He said, render your verdict fairly and impartially, and let the chips fall where they may. And that really mattered. Uh, The jurors said that, Yes, I interviewed Juror James Davis, and he said, yes, we remembered what Harwell's closing remarks and applauded them. We knew where it was going. We had talked about it. There was going to be, you know, acquittal. But Harwell was the first to stand up and make his plea, and he said, take the law, use the law and evidence, and let the chips fall where they may. And Davis further explained, we had decided that the state didn't have anything. And juror Jesse Bradley that I quoted earlier reasoned that if 25 African Americans had shot at a policeman with the intention of murdering him, they would have killed him. So 23 of the 25 defendants were found not guilty. Immediately, the defense appealed the two defendants who had been found guilty, 
and they were never brought to a retrial. So the only uh, person who ever served any time in prison as a result of the Columbia episode um, was um, in the in the uh, trial that involved Bill Pillow and and Lloyd Kennedy, and um, they Pillow was acquitted and Kennedy was pardoned by the governor after serving four months in prison. So that's only only time in prison for anybody involved in the episode. I would urge uh, our listeners. I would mm-hmm. urge our listeners, uh, if given the opportunity, to read the transcripts of the trial and read some of the deliberations that were were taking place. Some of the speeches. I, I'd like to read a, a little bit of Mr. Luby's closing argument, and I think it'll give you a sense not of only who he is, but sort of the gravity of the situation. This is what he said. We have spent millions, yay, billions of dollars to preserve democracy on Earth. And why was democracy threatened? If I remember correctly, it was because of the existence of a so-called master race. We sacrificed thousands of our young men in the flower of youth. We did all of that. We did all of that, that democracy shall not perish, but take root and grow and cover the Earth. But how can we go to the United Nations and demand and insist upon democracy in other countries when we don't practice it ourselves? That is the question before us. So those are high words in this little courthouse in Lawrence County, Tennessee. But I I think it's a wonderful example of sort of the gravity and the importance, certainly as he sees it. And I think everyone in that courtroom uh, saw it as well. This is something more than just a small event in rural Tennessee. This this was taking on a life that was uh, national, and, and by Luby's words, this was a, a global. This was a global effort. This this spoke to things bigger than rural Tennessee. This is human rights. Uh, Gail, did race relations between the Columbia law enforcement officers and the proprietors on East 8th Street or the clientele improve or deteriorate after the not guilty verdict? After the not guilty verdict, I don't think there was, I don't know that there was a a lot of change. Um, There was still um, local police, the local police were not paid well, and they were um, not highly regarded, uh, not trained particularly well. But And so much went on. But however, so many African Americans and whites moved to urban areas that um, not only uh, James Fleming, James Fleming and his mother moved to Detroit and, and stayed there, although James would come back within a few years and visit friends and family, and it was no problem. So in some ways, yes, things changed. But also the Flemings moved. They did not return to Cullioca. There were seven Fleming brothers. Billy had six brothers in in himself and their older sister. Four of them, three of them moved to Richland, Washington, out on the West Coast. Um, Nobody really returned to the Cullioca area. And none of the Flemings, incidentally, were there on the town square that night urging violence, with the exception of John Fleming Sr. He was drunk, inebriated, and he collapsed and had to be carried off. But Flo was there with the highway patrol, initially locally, urging people not to go in the bottom. And John, the older John Fleming Jr., was driving around trying to encourage people to go home. So it was it was not the same because... Whites had so many opportunities in leaving rural areas, 
and African Americans moved in, as we said, from the largest minority in 1940 in a rural area to the largest urban minority in 1960. Uh, I would just like to comment, if there's time, if not, I understand, about the situation with the police and African Americans in urban areas as well today, but that's up to you. Um, let, let's come back to that. I, I wanted to speak to Joanne's question for just a second. A local resident, Raymond Lockridge, recalled that prior to the riot, whenever he worked for whites, they gave him something to eat on the back porch. Afterwards, <laughs> he either ate with them or at their table when they had finished. Similarly, Addie Blair Cooper, who worked in a downtown department store as an elevator operator, noted that after the fray, whites began to treat blacks, quote, with just a little more courtesy. So, so maybe this Absolutely. prompted a little bit of change uh, after, after the event took place. Um, oh, I think that's an excellent point. And unquestionably, in terms of interaction between whites there and African Americans, I think there was a bit more respect. Um, and uh, yes, no, that's, a, that's an outstanding point. And I, I should have brought that up. But yes, there was a difference in terms of whites behavior toward many whites, not all, but many, toward African Americans, as you've just pointed out. I think it's, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's still still a work in progress in, in this area. I think there there's still a, a, a lot of change that needs to take place in, in terms of race relations in, in Middle Tennessee. Um, in your opinion, Dr. O'Brien, what is the legacy of the Columbia race riot? Well, I think the main legacy coming out of this is that as we moved from a society in which mob violence, extra-legal violence, lynchings were <clears throat> the primary way of, of quote, controlling African Americans, we moved into an urban environment across the country, be it Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, where the police were, <clears throat> and the local, excuse me, <clears throat> the criminal justice system was much more controlling than individuals. And I just wanted to note that there was a study done in 2015, and <clears throat> overall police officers, and we're talking about local police, there are 18,000 local police uh, agencies in this country. And they, uh, the Fraternal Organization of Police did not support. There are 300,000 members of the Fraternal Organization of Police. They did not support Romney or Obama in 2012, but they gave huge support for President Trump in 2016. Overall, the police officers need training. They need um, better pay, et cetera. But I did want to just point out in 2015, police, police officers overall used some sort of force 76% of the time when they stopped African-Americans, compared to 18% Hispanic, 7% Asian, and 1% white. <clears throat> and when they pull guns on people, 94% of the time it's an African-American person. 6% of the time it's a Hispanic person. And 0% of the time 
it's a white person. Do you see those statistics so, as an outcropping of the race riot in 46? Is, it, is this a connection that you see, a continuum? I think the connection is that as whites uh, in rural areas were in the military, under the GI Bill, they got training. They were able to leave their areas. William Billy Fleming left. He went to Richland, Washington to be with his older sister where she and her husband had moved. I think that as middle class, as, as these rural whites became more middle class and left to go to urban areas, mob violence decreased. And as African Americans left rural areas and moved to urban areas, they didn't benefit under the GI Bill because that was not fairly uh, written. But also they faced zoning laws initially and then racial covenants. So they were not able to integrate in these urban areas. Now, with the Fair Housing Act in 1968, if we look at the integration scale, with segregation being 100 and integration zero, the integration scale changed from 79% before 1968 to 59% by the turn of the century. So, but it was particularly more middle-class African-Americans who were able to move, those who were in rural areas, I mean, those who were in um, separate areas were ghettoized, and they found it harder uh, to deal with the situation. Dr. O'Brien, I just wanted to conclude quickly to say that, yes, rural to urban movement by whites and African-Americans was, essential in understanding the move from mob violence and to control by the criminal justice system that we see so very clearly in the Tennessee episode, Columbia, Tennessee episode. Dr. O'Brien's book is called The Color of the Law, Race, Violence, and Justice in the Post-World War II South. Where can listeners find your book, Dr. O'Brien? Well, my book itself was published by UNC Press. It's also available on... um, on um, the, the, Amazon and that sort of thing because they have made an e-version of it as well as a written version. But if I have a moment, I did want to say that I created a website based on some of the transcripts from the trial and, and a lot of things we've talked about, particularly with teachers in mind and those who might want, but anybody can go to it. If you just go to sites, S-I-T-E-S dot Google dot com slash a is in alphabet slash ncsu.edu slash O'Brien, all in small uh, letters, O B R I E N slash. You can learn uh, a lot more about it. And uh, so you can acquire the book either from UNC Press or Amazon.com. You can get it in electronic format or print format. Uh, but you can also go online and uh, look at that website, particularly if you're interested in teaching about it or perhaps just seeing some more of it in reality. Dr. Brian, thank you for sharing your expertise. We appreciate it so much. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro, and Murray and Giles County for their support. On behalf of Marty Verhoff, our engineer, and Joanne McClellan, thank you for listening. We'll be back ne- with next week with another edition of History's Hook.